again. Good morning and welcome Santa Barbara Community Church. It is good to be together. If we haven't yet met, my name is Benji and I serve as one of the pastors here. And today we are wrapping up a four-week anniversary series. It's a series of teachings. We do something like this every single year, right around this time, in order to remind ourselves of who we want to be as a church, who we've always been, what characteristics of the kingdom of God and the family of God we want to carry forward into the new year of church life ahead. So we will end anniversary series today. Next week, we're going to be in Colossians. So if you haven't yet picked up your home group study guide, not only do you need to pick it up, you need to complete it because your first study, you're going to talk about it in somebody's living room this week. Um, I'm excited to get to Colossians. But before that, we have one last week in Haggai. So if you have your Bible, please open it to Haggai chapter 2. By now, you've heard us say it's right between Zechariah and Zephaniah. It is a small book, probably only one page. It's towards the end of your Old Testament. But Haggai chapter 2 is where we're going to be one more time today. But we're going to do something a little different to start. Because we have spent the last number of weeks reading the same set of a mere nine verses, the need for a recap feels a little different. So instead of doing that, um, I've invited my friend Sarah to come help me with something. And so Sarah is going to make her way up. And I want you to know that if you are visiting for the very first time and you're like, hey, I wasn't here and I don't know about the recap, um, it, it's coming. It's just coming in a slightly different form. And so Sarah's going to come help us. I want to give Sarah a hand now. Um, I, so the instructions I gave Sarah were, hey, can you help me with something? And she said, sure. That's all she knows. That's all she knows. So we're going to do a little quiz on Haggai 2. Um, and, and by, and, yeah. And so I'm going to put questions on the screen. And um, there are multiple choice questions. And each question has a, a one, two, or three answer. Okay. But because we believe in being collectively invested, all of these people are going to help you. And okay. so here's how it's going to work. I'm going to put a, a question up there. And then if they believe it's answer number one, they're going to... This is one. And then I say what they think. Yeah, oh, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. That's how it's going to work. You say what they think. Um, and yeah, you, you got it. One, two, and three. It's fairly straightforward. Okay. All right. Yeah. We good? Yeah. We good? All right. You're going to have to hold that to your mouth. There we go. All right. Here we go. Um, so here we go. Um, question number one. Which king allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem from Babylon? Was it A, King Arthur, B, Two, King Darius, or three, King Triton? I'm going to say two. You're going to say two? You didn't even really look at them. No, look, right there. Oh, oh, oh okay, okay. That's okay. everyone right there. Okay. You're, yeah. That's everyone? No, no. No, okay. I meant that's like... Fine. Yeah, I got yeah. you. Um, so let's see if you're right. Oh, it was King Darius. Hey, good job. Proud of you. Proud of you. Um, I would say they get harder, but that's not true. So here we go. Um, <laughs> who was the governor in Jerusalem after their turn from exile? Was it one, Zerubbabel, two, Zaytun, or three, Zendaya? One. <laughs> one. You're going with one, Zerubbabel. Are you, are you sure? That's, that's the answer. Okay, great. Yes. That's great. Um, hey, you're correct again. Good job. Proud of you. You're doing, you're doing really great. You're, do, you're doing really well. Um, which structure remained in ruins and prompted God's challenge to the people? Was it one, Target, two, Trader Joe's, or three, the temple? Three, the temple. Three, the temple. Are you, you want to check with them? Oh, yeah. Guys? Okay, three. You're sticking with it. Yeah. Okay. okay. I, hey, you're right. What do you know? Good job. Yeah, Sarah, you're crushing it. Um, here we go. Number four. Which phrase did God repeat to Zerubbabel, Joshua, and all the people? One, be strong. Two, be all that you can be. Or three, be the change you want to see in the world. 
One. One, which is what? Be strong. Be strong. Hey, you're right again. Good job. Okay. Okay, so I got to tell you, this last one is not quite as straightforward. It's not quite as easy. It's a little more complicated, but it's the last one. You you good? I built you up. Here we go. Which of the following is a key word in Haggai 2? Is it one, glory, two, glory, or three, glory? Man. I, I know. Feels complicated, right? Whoa. This, this is, wow. I'm going I'm to say four. Um, um, so there's only, there's, only th- there's only three. There was really only um, three choices, and any of them would have been right, but that wasn't one of them. Do you want, do you want another try? Yeah, yeah. Five. Oh, okay. Good. You're, hey, give Sarah a hand. You want to put that in that thing? Man, Sarah, great job. Um, you, guys, you guys were careful listeners, obviously. You've been doing a great job tracking this story. And we're going to read it one more time. So if you are able, I invite you to stand to honor the reading of God's word from Haggai chapter 2, a story that will now sound very, very familiar. Haggai 2, beginning in verse 1, in the second year of King Darius, on the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, Zerubbabel declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. Well, we have marinated in this story for the past number of weeks as a way to revisit, as I mentioned, the roots of our church so that we can recommit to being the best version of the people of God we can be into the future. And so the first week we talked about being joyfully faithful people. The second week we talked about being a relentlessly relational people. Last week, Mike helped us think about being a collectively invested people. And today... I want to help us think about what it means to be generously engaged. Generously engaged. So as we've gone through this text now any number of weeks, I'm sure you've noticed at some point that in the midst of everything going on about rebuilding the temple, God's commands to his people, he says something about his own finances that's a little odd, right? Would you look at verse 8? The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. Now, this could seem somewhat like an odd addition in the flow of the text. Like it's some kind of out of place flex by God in the middle. And yet, I think there's more going on here than we might notice at first. So God's calling on his people to rebuild the temple undoubtedly struck some of them as a really exciting project. 
And yet others probably felt a little more anxiety. In the words of James Carville, it's the economy, stupid. Exile was probably not a time of financial flourishing for the people of God. And getting their financial feet under them now that they are back in Jerusalem was probably a very high priority. But as chapter 1 reminded us, the numbers were not trending in the right direction. Would you look across the page to Haggai 1, beginning in verse 5. Now this is what the Lord Almighty says, Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces, on people and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. Crops failing, drought everywhere, money slipping through their fingers And now God asks them to undertake a building project with a massive price tag. And some of them were bound to be breaking out their papyrus spreadsheets and thinking it's just not going to work. But as Robert Alden tells us, this verse 8 reminder from God would have stirred the people toward faithfulness and trust. Robert Alden says, God's claim that the silver and the gold are his may be a response to the fears of the people. They were economically destitute. The drought and consequent famine had forced them to dip deeply into their meager resources. Subsequently, they found no funds for the temple project. And along comes God and saying, the gold is mine. The silver is mine. You can imagine the swell of confidence that comes from being reminded that God's call to generosity is based on his own generosity to his people. This brief story illustrates this biblical truth. The Bible consistently calls those who have experienced the generosity of God to lives marked by similar generosity. And I know, because I'm very familiar with what goes on in my own heart, that sometimes it can be easy to fall prey to the lie that there isn't enough to go around It can be easy to cling to resources. It's not always easy to recognize that God's generosity should compel me toward generosity of my own. It's even more pronounced in times of perceived scarcity. And yet, for me at least, when I look around every corner of my life, I see God continues to be generous to me. And part of the Spirit's work in my life, in my heart, is to shape my heart toward more generosity in response to the needs around me. So generously engaged is a family value around here. Not because we want to trumpet our own giving. In fact, the exact opposite. We want to trumpet God's generosity. We want to declare loudly that God has been generous to us. And therefore, we will respond with equally generous hearts. 
One specific way we try to do this every single year is through what we call our special offering for the poor. It's an opportunity to recognize and name that because God has been abundant and generous with us, we want to then be abundant and generous with those who are experiencing material poverty. We usually do this at the end of February, the end of August. Well, recently we collected gifts for the work of Santa Barbara Rescue Mission and Medical Ambassadors. And looking back, we recognize that um, we did something somewhat unfair to you. We had one of those Sundays on a day when we also distracted you with tacos and a bounce house. And so I want you to know, some have asked like, hey, did did I miss the chance? I don't see the red boxes anymore. You didn't miss the chance. If you still want to give to the work of the Santa Barbara Rescue Mission, the Medical Ambassadors International, you can do that electronically through the end of this week. It felt like we need to know that because this is, again, a way that we respond to God's generosity in our own lives. God's generosity toward his people shapes his people toward lives of generosity. And yet, it's important that we see that the Bible's call is not simply to be a people who write checks and call it a day. So I want to talk for the next few minutes about what it means to not just be generous, but to be generously engaged. So will you turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 10? Luke chapter 10. We are going to read one of Jesus's most famous stories. So as before, if you are able, would you please stand to honor the reading of God's word from Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may return to your seats. Man, we love the story of the Good Samaritan, don't we? We name hospitals after this story. We name an RV travel club after this story. How many other parables are treated that way? None. So we love the way that Jesus speaks to the religious elites who felt pretty self-satisfied in their understanding of the law. We love the surprising protagonists. We love the outpouring of mercy, and we should love those things. But I want us to unpack a couple different aspects of this story here this morning, beginning with verse 29. So in verse 29, we learn that this scribe, this expert in the law, another term for scribe, well, he poses a question to Jesus that is not actually asked in good faith. 
The expert in the law we read here wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, understanding the rationale behind this question is pretty key to understanding the shock of the parable. Because in the first century, most rabbis held that faithful and observant Jews were obligated by the law, which was just quoted from Leviticus 19.18, they were obligated to other faithful and observant Jews to treat them as a neighbor. But pretty much anybody beyond that, well, that was up for debate. And this question enters Jesus directly into that debate. This scribe knows what he's doing, and he says, okay, so who's my neighbor, Jesus? Now, had we been listening that day, this wouldn't have shocked us that much yet. This was kind of normal back-and-forth discourse. This is a fairly regular type of question to be brought to a rabbi. So the expert in the law, this scribe, he poses the question, who is my neighbor? And had we been standing there, we would have expected a really pretty brief response from Jesus. Something along the lines of, any faithful and observant Jew is your neighbor. Instead, Jesus starts to tell a story. Now, because most of us were raised in the modern Western world with its over-the-top commitment to hyper-rationalism, this move by Jesus seems a little odd. Maybe even a little embarrassing. Like, dude, just answer the question. Like, be straightforward. And yet, in first century Palestine, storytelling was one of the most popular ways to communicate complex truths. And throughout the Gospels, we've seen Jesus as a master storyteller. So he starts to tell a story that very quickly begins to challenge what we would have expected to hear as an answer to the question, who is my neighbor? First, Jesus introduces the traveler as simply a man. Plain old anthropos in Greek. This is tricky Jesus. Because the guy's expecting to hear, oh, if he's a faithful, observant Jew, that's your neighbor. And Jesus says, there was a dude. And things get even trickier. Because this plain old anthropos is stripped of his clothes, likely leaving his undergarments in place because exposing a person's nakedness was profound offense in the scriptures. Ask Noah's sons about that. So he's stripped of his outer garment, and he's beaten unconscious. That's what half-dead in verse 30 means, which means that he can't show off his accent to prove that he's from the right neighborhood. All of this matters, as Joel Green helps us see. He says, in light of the debate surrounding the reach of love, grounded in how one reads Leviticus 19, the impossibility of classifying this person as either friend or foe immediately subverts any interest in questions of this nature. Stripped of his clothes and left half dead, the man's anonymity throughout the story is ensured. He is simply a human being, a neighbor in need. So our unlucky traveler is lying on the side of the road in his skivvies, unable to speak. And all that anyone who would encounter him would know is that this dude is having a really bad day. And in Jesus' story, a priest and a Levite roll by. And they don't help out. Notice, Jesus doesn't tell us why. Now, throughout the centuries, lots of reasons have been given. But the stark fact is this, that people of very high esteem in their society noticed and did nothing and kept walking. This probably would have been the first shock in the story had we been standing there listening. But this is just a tremor because the big one is in verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. I can't begin to express how unexpected this turn is by Jesus. Samaritans were contemptuously viewed as half-breeds 
religiously compromised and outside of the covenant. Rabbinic literature of the time spoke of Samaritans with open disdain. In fact, one biblical historian even found evidence that the Samaritans were publicly cursed in the synagogues. And a petition was offered up daily, praying to God that the Samaritans might not be partakers of eternal life. To position the Samaritan as the hero of this story would have been profoundly uncomfortable for Jesus' audience. And yet that's precisely what Jesus does here. And what's most significant about this story to our overall theme today of being generously engaged, the defining feature of the Samaritan's heroism, it was deep and direct engagement with the needs of the man who fell into the hands of robbers. As Daryl Bach points out, Jesus details in a series of verbs just how active this man is in ministering to his newly discovered needy neighbor. He goes to him, bandages him, pours oil and wine on his wounds, puts him on his donkey, carries him to the inn and takes care of him, even to the point of leaving enough money behind to make sure the man has two weeks lodging to recover. In addition, he tells the innkeeper to keep a running tab so that when he returns, he can pay for any cost overruns. When the Samaritan encountered a person in need, he invested his time, his resources, his very body. This is a picture of fully engaged mercy. There's one final shock for us in this passage, and perhaps you noticed it at the end. Did you see how Jesus turned this whole conversation around in the final couple of verses? The scribe had come to Jesus, wanting Jesus to give an edict to tell him, who am I obligated to love? Who qualifies as my neighbor? And instead, at the end of his story, Jesus asked the scribe, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? In essence, Jesus told this expert in the law to stop worrying about using the law to define who is a neighbor and instead start living as a neighbor in fulfillment of the law. The scribe wanted limits and Jesus gave him a lifestyle. And then he ended this whole interaction with the gold standard of all application points in any sermon ever. Go and do likewise. Fam, it is an unavoidable truth that Jesus defined neighbor in terms of generous engagement. And so I want to ask us, what does it look like for us to go and do likewise? Are we generously engaged? I believe each side of that phrase matters. Some of us need to hear the challenge of generosity. We need to ask ourselves if we have allowed the generosity of God shown to us to flow out of us in generosity with our own resources. Still others of us, I believe, need to hear this challenge to engagement and ask ourselves if we're really comfortable writing that check, but our time and our talents, well... Direct engagement is just not for us. Church, can I challenge us in the words of the Apostle Paul to exceed in the grace of giving? Year after year, your SVCC finance committee, staff, and elders work together to create a budget that allows us to be generously engaged right here on this campus, in our neighborhoods, and around the world. And to be honest, this year in particular, our giving hasn't quite been on track to meet those budgeted commitments. And I want to say, if you consider Santa Barbara Community Church your church home, and you are not yet giving, the rest of your church family urges you to get generously engaged so that we can see the mission of God move forward on this campus, in our neighborhoods, and around the world.
We have giving boxes that are in the back. We rarely draw attention to them. We have electronic options for giving. But your church family says, get generously engaged. Church, can I also challenge us? In the words of James, the brother of Jesus, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? James goes on in chapter 2 of the letter that bears his name to paint a picture of engagement that validates the claims of faith. He says, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. The family of God is not called to cut checks and then cut out. We are called to a life of engagement with one another and with the needs of those around us. And I want to say, if you consider Santa Barbara Community Church your church home, and you are not yet engaged, the rest of your church family urges you to get generously engaged. Get engaged in the outbreaking of the kingdom of God on this campus, in our neighborhoods, and around the world. Because as we're reminded throughout the scriptures, around the world is what God has always had in view. God has always been interested in creating a generously engaged people, not for their own sake, but for the sake of the world that he created out of love and longs to see flourishing under his kind rule. We see it, for example, from the very beginning, his call of Abram in Genesis 12, in which he says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. We see it in Psalm 67, this picture of the people of God blessed for the sake of the nations. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us so that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. May the nations be glad and sing for joy for you rule the peoples with equity and guide the nations of the earth. We see it in the Lord's command to go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, like we saw today, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. We see it in the dramatic vision of the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation, where the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. And where John tells us, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. The scriptures remind us that God has been generous to us for the sake of the world. And when we are not generously engaged, we are cutting off God's blessings from those who deserve to receive it. The gospel tells a story of a God who from the beginning has been generously engaged with his people and his creation. And this God of pursuit, this God of blessing, this God of nearness, this God of mercy calls his people to reveal his character through their own lives. I am really grateful that for 44 years, Santa Barbara Community Church has sought to live in response to God's generosity as generously engaged people, both with one another and with the world, for the greater glory of God among the nations. As we come to the end of this anniversary series, I'm hoping that we will commit again to a 
to a vision of church life that would remind us to be joyfully faithful and relentlessly relational and collectively invested and particularly generously engaged. Because that's the story we tell week by week when we come to this table. We tell a story of a generously engaged Savior who, in his own words, did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' mercy and his self-sacrifice sets the standard for our own generously engaged lives. Because of Jesus' generous engagement with us, we come to this table to tell a story not only of forgiveness of sins, but of lives transformed to live for God's glory in all things and in all places. The text calls us, go and do likewise. Church, this is our calling. And if your sins have been covered by God's gracious generosity in providing Christ as our Savior, you're invited to this table where we come in confession, aware that we have not always lived out God's character perfectly. But we also come in gratitude, ready to receive the grace that Jesus offers us. And we come in need, asking the Spirit to increasingly empower us to not only consider Jesus' example, but to go and do likewise. If you're not sure what your relationship is to Jesus and his offer of forgiveness and transformation, I really urge you, come talk to one of our staff. Come talk to our prayer teams. We would love to consider that alongside of you. But church, let's come to the table as we continue in worship with our generously engaged, scandalously gracious God, both for our sake and for the sake of the world.